listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, as we, as we prepare to continue into Hebrews, uh, as we're, we're preaching through Hebrews, uh, relatively briefly, just looking at this theme of Jesus being the superior one uh, that's explored by the author of Hebrews, uh, let's just stop for a moment and pray and ask God to be gracious to us as we spend time with him. Father, we thank you for your word and that it is living and active and that when we come to look at it, that it, it, it lays bare our souls, that we might be united to you in faith, that we might perceive your beauty. Pray that you would do a work in us this morning because we have come to your word. As we have celebrated 10 years as a church, and that's just a drop in the bucket of your history of redemption and, and all that you have done, Lord, we give you thanks and praise that you have allowed us to be a part of it. Um, even if it feels a small and insignificant part of your story, we thank you that, that we are able to, to come and serve you in this neighborhood with these people. I pray that you would bless the years ahead and that you would always remind us that, that the foundation we began on is the same foundation that we stand on now, and that's that Jesus is king, that all of our hope is in him, that all of the glory goes to him, that everything we do ought to be serving him. And so would you show us in your word his beauty and our call of response to that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, in the first three chapters of the Bible, we're introduced to two fundamental spiritual realities that really color the entire story of creation and of scripture and of humanity that really follow up to this very moment with us in this room. And the, the, two, the two fundamental spiritual realities are, on the one hand, the rest of God, and on the other hand, the toil of man. So God at rest and man toiling. Genesis 2 verses 2 and 3 say this. It says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And then following Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, God says this in Genesis 3, 17 through 19 to Adam. He says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So in the splendor of his majesty, God accomplished his work in founding the entire universe, and he rested from his labor. And, and he invited Adam and Eve into this position of honor and, and delight to enjoy his rest in his garden, to participate in his works, to experience the fullness of his blessing. So the rest of God is not just that God ceased doing things, which he did on the seventh day. The rest of God is that God is the unopposed sovereign over everything. 
he can rest as the king of creation and beyond because he rests in uncontested glory. He rests in his works, will, and decrees because there is never a threat that they will not come to pass. God's rest has been from the foundation of the work. And to participate in the rest of God like Adam and Eve did in the garden, is to delight in his works and to live in such a way and in such a place that God's glory, his kingship, his authority, and his salvation are unquestionable and without competition. And Adam sacrificed this rest. He sacrificed this rest by allowing God to take a back seat. So the serpent's word took precedent over God's word. The forbidden fruit took precedent over the expansive bounty of the plants of the garden. Adam decided to be king and allowed his wife to be counselor over the Lord God of all wisdom. And so, in Genesis 3, Adam and his offspring are subjected to the curse of toil. Toiling is not rest. Toiling is working with little to show for it. Toiling is sweating, bleeding, failing, and eating the sweat and tears from your own head. Toiling is facing oppression from thorns and thistles and oppressors and enemies. And all of us have toiled. Our fathers and mothers toiled before us, their fathers too. We toil to find comfort. We toil to make ends meet. We toil to enjoy this broken world. We wrestle with weeds and thorns as we try to make meaning for ourselves. We toil in our jobs and in our homes. But most of all, we toil in the depths of our souls. Where will we find relief in a world of pain? We toil. Where will we be secure in a world of danger? So we toil. Where will we find mercy in a world of cruelty? Where will we end up when our toiling is completed and our bodies begin to decay back into the dust they were created from? So we toil to be happy enough. We toil to be good enough. We toil to be sufficiently sedated, to be pleased and pleasant enough, to be visible enough, and some of us even toil to be invisible enough. We toil to get wealthy, to make our parents proud, to make God proud. We toil all the days of our life. And our souls, as they toil, they toil with a deep longing. And the object of our soul's longing, whether you realize it this morning or not, is the rest of God. In the last few years, my favorite TV show that's come out has been The Bear on FX. And it's about a chef named Carmi who takes over his brother's failing restaurant after his brother committed suicide related to addiction and mental illness. In the last episode of the first season, the main character, Carmi, is at an Al-Anon meeting, which is a support group for people whose family members or loved ones struggle with addiction. And he gives what I think is maybe the most potent monologue I've ever seen in television. And he talks about how his brother made him feel confident and safe and how much of his identity and happiness was contingent upon his brother's approval and being in his brother's presence, but his brother pushed him away. And so in exile from the family restaurant, Carmi begins to work hard to make something of himself on his own. And mainly what he's working toward, he says, is to make his brother proud or jealous or anything so long as his brother would take notice of him. 
He says this, he says, I separated herbs and I shucked oysters and clams and uni and I cut myself and I got garlic and onions and peppers in my fingernails and in my eyes and my skin was dry and oily at the same time. I had calluses on my fingers from the knives and my stomach was wrecked and it was everything. Goes on to say, and I found this station for myself where I was fast and I wasn't afraid and I felt okay. I was good at something, and I just wanted him to know that, and I just wanted him to notice. I just wanted him to be like, good job. Talks about how he gets so deep into this world of of his work, and he found so much comfort in the routine and in the exacting nature of it, and finally being good at something and having something that gave him confidence, and he says, and then I lost track of time, and my brother died. Carmi was toiling. In his toiling, he was trying to achieve meaning. He was trying to earn love and approval and respect. And he tricked himself into thinking that he had finally made it until he realized it was too late. He lost track of time. And we do this too. We do this with God. We look at the rest that God offers, the commandments that God gives us, the gospel that God has proclaimed to us, and we feel rejected because of our own problems, our own failures in light of the holiness of God. And so we run to toil so that we can prove ourselves to God or so that we can prove to ourselves that we don't actually need him. But we do. We need God. We need the rest of God's. Our souls will not rest until they find that rest. Our text this morning begins like this. It says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Hear this. Brothers and sisters, you aren't out of time. While the promise of entering his rest still stands. So we're not out of time, which means we should be wildly afraid. Of what? Of ending up like Carmi but in an even more eternal sense of ending up like Carmi, where we toil for rest and for a salvation that we can never truly achieve on our own. The text goes on in verse 2. It says, For good news came to us just as to them, referring to the Israelites. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So this is good news, brothers and sisters. We're not out of time. And we've received good news. We're not out of time, and we've received good news. And the good news, the author of Hebrews has already told us, is that God has spoken to us finally and fully in his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus has taken on flesh and borne our weaknesses. That he has been crushed for our iniquity. And that he has accomplished for us a salvation from slavery to sin and Satan and to death so that we can enter into the rest of God. The good news is that God can and will give rest to his people. Brothers and sisters, you won't always toil. The people of Israel heard this gospel, though not in the fullness that we have through Christ, but they heard this gospel that there was rest for God's people and they didn't trust in God with faith. And last week, Reed showed us how the wilderness generation who came out of slavery in Egypt, they didn't get to enter into the promised land of rest in Canaan because of their hardness of hearts and their lack of faith in God. 
And the author of Hebrews is continuing this same discussion. He's comparing the church to the wilderness generation. And he's doing this on purpose. He's saying the Jews were freed from slavery in Egypt by Moses and by the mighty power of God. And when they were given that salvation and had a promised land of rest to look forward to, they abandoned faithfulness to God. And he says, church, you're in a similar situation. Jesus has freed you from Satan, sin, and death. And there is a promised eternal rest that is waiting for you, that's been secured for you, that is without question going to exist. And so keep pressing forward. Keep trusting in God so that we can enter that heavenly rest. Verses 3 through 7 says, For we have believed, we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day, from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's a lot going on here, but I want to hone in on a couple of things. First, there's this discussion of God's rest. And the author of Hebrews is saying that the rest of God is the same rest from when he rested from his works on the seventh day. So God has always been at rest since then. And now this is in tension with the fact that God's always at work. When Jesus in his earthly ministry said, my father has been at work until now. And so we wonder, how can God always be at rest and always be at work and I think what the author of Hebrews is getting at is that God can work and rest simultaneously, one, because he's God, but two, because God never toils in his work. God never toils because there's never a risk of God not accomplishing what he sets out to do. There is no uh, opposition that would present a serious challenge for God to accomplish his works. It's impossible for God to fail in his works, to receive glory from his works, to be outdone in his works. And so he's been resting since the seventh day because he established the universe and he had an eternal decree of what would come of that universe and of his people, and there has never been a doubt that what God has decreed will come to pass. And so God has been at rest. And and so the author of Hebrews is saying, press on in faith so that we can enter the rest, but what's good news is that rest is pre-existing and ever-present rest of God. So that doesn't mean, the author of Hebrews isn't saying, let me dangle this carrot of eternal reward before you so that maybe if you're good enough or you believe faithfully enough, maybe God will establish some sort of rest. The author of Hebrews is saying, God already is at rest and he's inviting you into that rest through his son. There's nothing you have to accomplish to receive that rest. There's nothing you have to do to receive that rest. And there is no possibility in which you will get to the end and that rest won't exist. That is good news, church. The rest that the people of Israel in the wilderness generation were longing for was the rest of the land of Canaan. A land, the scriptures say, was flowing with milk and honey and that would have peace from enemies and warfare be a, a land in which God was worshipped faithfully and his justice was done. 
And yet the author of Hebrews is showing that that Canaan was only a shadow. It was only ever meant to be a shadow of the real rest to come in the new heavens and the new earth, the rest that comes at the end of all things, when God's people will truly dwell with him in eternal gladness and rest from pain and suffering and sorrow and sin and the oppression of those who hate them and any doubt that Jesus is king. Let's keep reading it. On this theme, the author says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So last week we saw Jesus compared to Moses, who was the the great prophet, mediator, and emancipator for the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And now we're introduced to Joshua, who was the successor of Moses as the leader of the people of Israel. And Joshua's role in the history of God's people was that he took over for Moses prior to their entering Canaan. And it was Joshua's job to lead the people of Israel into Canaan and to begin to establish rest in that land. Joshua, who has the same name in Hebrew, by the way, is Jesus, a name which means Yahweh saves. And so Joshua led Israel in conquering these pagan nations who were dwelling in the promised land. And throughout his life, Israel was faithful to God. Israel was faithful. They kept the Sabbath. They obeyed the commandments. They they worshiped in the tabernacle. They were faithful to to, uh, seek to rid the land of Canaan of idol worship and idol worshipers. But the problem for the ministry of Joshua is that he died before the ministry was complete. See, when Joshua died, there there were still pagans dwelling and worshiping in the promised land of God. And, And when Joshua died, the people of Israel started worshiping those other gods. They forgot the God who had saved them. They began to assimilate into these pagan cultures and eventually their culture deteriorated, their holiness deteriorated, and eventually they were even exiled from this land. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, Joshua did a really good job of beginning to establish rest for the people of God, but Joshua didn't establish rest for the people of God. Jesus has given us rest. There is a greater Joshua who has given us rest because Jesus has conquered all the enemies of God through his life, death, and resurrection. And as the author of Hebrews has already told us earlier, he will put all of his enemies under his feet. And so while there was always a possibility in Joshua's life that all of the enemies of God would not be rid from the land of Canaan, there is not a possibility in which all of the enemies of God will not be put under the feet of Jesus. So rest has been accomplished and future eternal rest is secure in Jesus because he will complete the work of rest for the people of God. And rest in the Bible is always the result of finished work. There will be a day in which the people of God are no longer tempted by false gods or attacked by those who don't love God or left to toil in exile from the presence of God. Final rest is sure in Christ. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 12 and we'll address verses 9 through 11 at the end. Verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This passage has been used 
throughout the history of the church to defend the Bible's sufficiency and the Bible's authority and the God-breathed nature of the Bible. People look at this passage and they say, okay, the Word of God is living and active, and it's, it's doing all of these things. And so that means the Bible is trustworthy. And that is part of what the author of Hebrews is doing in this passage. But I don't think it's the primary thing the author of Hebrews is doing in this passage. Because in the first paragraph of Hebrews, what did the author establish? That God used to speak in some ways, but now he has finally spoken in his son. So the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. He's saying, Jesus Christ is sharper than a two-edged sword. The Word of God is, is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is revealed to us in the Scriptures, but Jesus is the one who is sharper than a two-edged sword and who, who does these things, and so Christ is compared to a conquering sword. Why would he be compared to a conquering sword? Well, he's compared to a conquering sword because Joshua led a conquest against the enemies of God in his ministry to bring rest to the people of God. And Joshua's ministry was a ministry of the sword. And the author of Hebrews is showing here that Jesus also has a ministry of the sword, but it is not a sword of iron. It is the sword by which all the hearts and thoughts and will and works of men are exposed. Christ is a conquering sword which leads to spiritual conviction, spiritual exposure, and allows for spiritual revival. He is a spiritual sword, and wherever Christ is proclaimed as king and as the only sovereign, souls are cut to the quick. The thoughts and intentions of men are laid bare. Nothing is hidden from his sight. When Christ... When Christ returns, there will be a final battle against all the enemies of God. And they will be put to utter and open shame. And they will all be put beneath the feet of Jesus. But until that day, wherever the word of Christ is proclaimed, rest enters the souls of men. Rest replaces toil in our hearts where Christ is proclaimed, where Christ's kingship is made known, where a throne is established in the hearts of men for Christ to sit as king, rest is given. He will establish the fullness of rest in that final day, but until that day, the word being proclaimed makes way for the rest of God. So let's go back to verse 9. It says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, and as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So, so Joshua didn't give rest to the people of God, and, and one might think, well, that means that the people of God just aren't going to have rest, right? He promised them this promised land where they would experience rest, and it just didn't happen. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, there, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Why? Because God promised rest, and so his people are going to get it. So, something else is going on here. The author has gone from using this generic term for rest to using this term Sabbath rest which literally translates to, to like 
Sabbath rest or Sabbath keeping. And, and he's doing it to make a point. And it, at first glance, it may be that may seem that the author has been building up this argument that the Christian in the new covenant should still observe the Sabbath, that there should still be Sabbath observance for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest. But I don't think that's the primary application of what's going on here, although I do think it's a secondary application. What we need to understand is what, what does he mean by Sabbath rest? Well, the Sabbath rest of God is that rest he's already alluded to, that seventh day rest the seventh day rest from creation that, that has already been alluded to and that God has been experiencing since the foundation of the world and will eternally. And so it's not just prior rest, but it's future rest. Sabbath rest is this in-time rest where we will experience the fullness of God's rest in the new heavens and the new earth and, and experience the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And finished work, leads to rest. The work of salvation has been finished on the cross, and so now we will one day experience the fullness of the rest it provides. And we know that the work of salvation was finished on the cross because Christ said it is finished when he was on the cross, which means there's rest coming. One day we will enter into the heavenly Canaan, and we will never toil again. We will only rest for all time and for eternity in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Resting from our works, as the author alluded to, is, is resting from our evil works of disobedience. But even more emphatically, it's resting from our toiling. He who rests from his toiling rests in the rest of God. In eternal glory, we will not wrestle again with thorns and thistles. There just won't be any. We will instead eat the bread of life. And it will, be, it will have been prepared for us by the blood of the brow of Christ rather than by the sweat of our own brow like Adam's bread. We will feast upon the fruits of our labors and our hands won't be calloused from the work because his hands have been scarred from the nails. We will rest and eat from the tree of life that has been made available to us because of the tree of Christ's suffering. So his completed work is our rest for all time. And the conclusion of the author is, so let us strive to enter that rest. But if resting is resting in the finished work of Christ, if, if it's resting in grace, if it's resting in this Christian gospel that we have nothing to offer God, that there's nothing that we need to do in order to be saved, to experience the rest of God, what does it mean to strive to enter God's rest? Because surely there's nothing we can strive and accomplish that would allow us to experience God's rest. Well, well striving to enter God's rest is to remain perpetually in a state in which we are faithfully trusting in the finished work of, our, of Christ on our behalf, which actually turns out to require a great bit of striving. If we look at the history of God's people, they, they find it hard over and over to rest in the finished work of God, to trust in God's power on their behalf, and so instead they turn to toiling, right? So striving is a striving to remain faithful, and I think there's three primary applications for us this morning as it comes to taking hold of that future and final rest. 
that we have in the finished work of Christ. The first is the most clear from the text, and that is do not harden your heart toward the gospel. Over and over, the author of Hebrews is saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So brothers and sisters, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hard hearts toward the gospel are hearts that don't believe they need God's grace or don't believe that God could actually show grace to them. Hearts that don't really believe that God is loving or kind or merciful. Hearts that instead believe that there's something maybe better than God and his good news given in his son. Hard hearts miss out on the rest of God, both in the present and in eternity. And so today, if you hear his voice, today, if you've seen the finished work of Christ on your behalf, do not harden your hearts. Soften your heart to trust in God's work on your behalf. Soften your heart to trust that one day you won't toil because of Christ's work on your behalf. Which leads to the second application. Stop toiling. Stop toiling, but specifically stop toiling for salvation and for approval and live instead a a life marked by resting in God's finished work. Remember Carmi's toiling. We talked about it at the beginning. It's so potent when he says that all he wanted was just for his brother to say, good job. Good job. And, and if we look in our hearts, that's something that all of us want, right? Like we want approval. We want someone to just notice and to give us some sort of approval, but quit toiling for the approval of others. Quit toiling for the approval of God. He's approved of you in Christ. You don't have to toil so that he'll approve of you. He just loves you. He's just forgiven you. He just wants you to be his son or his daughter. So quit toiling for his approval. Quit toiling for your own approval of yourself. Quit working so that you can save yourself through security or wealth or accomplishments or morality or immortality. God has accomplished your redemption. Rest in that truth. Now, now hear me, this doesn't mean that you won't toil as a human being who has real work to do in a fallen world. You will still wrestle against the fallen world. You will still experience failure. You will still be bruised and crushed and beaten at times, but that doesn't mean that you have to toil for your salvation or your acceptance or your belonging in the household of God. You don't need to strive to earn what God has freely given you in Jesus Christ. Instead, strive to maintain faith that God has freely given it to you in Jesus Christ. If you trust in the finished work of Christ and serve him with your heart in that last day, do you know what will be said to you? For those of you who just want to hear good job, if you trust in the finished work of Christ and stop toiling, do you know what God will say to you? He will say this, well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. If you want to hear a good job, stop working to earn it yourself. Instead, serve the king who has accomplished it for you. Your faith and your faithfulness to him are enough. The gift of grace is your hope for joy and rest in the future. The gift of grace is your ticket to a good job. The final application is observe the Sabbath. As Christians, we get to enjoy the rest of God at all times. 
We get to enjoy it in our hearts and in our souls because Christians have stopped striving to be loved. We've stopped striving to be approved of or saved or forgiven or to have meaning because God has done all these things for us. He's given these things to us. And so we've entered into the rest that God has provided for us in our souls. But we also know that the fullness of that rest has not yet come. We are, like the wilderness generation, a people on the way. And so we still toil in this life and strive to enter the fullness of that rest that will be given on the last day. And so until then, God has given us a precious gift in the Sabbath. He's given us a physical and regular time for our bodies, our minds, and our souls to stop their toiling and to rest in God. The Bible commands us to rest one day in seven and devote it to the Lord. And this is a gracious command. Because when we set the Lord's day aside and we stop toiling and we come to be with God's people, to hear God's word, to feast at the table God has prepared for us, and to to stop all of our moving and and to stop worrying about what's going to fall apart in our life if we don't do things for a day, we get to taste a bit of the eternal rest to come. We get a portrait of heaven when we stop and rest. In Exodus 31, God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, he says, above all, tell them to keep my Sabbaths. Above all, tell them to keep my Sabbaths. And throughout the Old Covenant, Sabbath keeping was considered the most important element of Israel's faithfulness to God in the Old Covenant. And we wonder why. Why would that be the most important sign of God's people being faithful to his covenant? And it's, this is the reason. Because our faithfulness to God is expressed best when we stop to remember that his works are enough for us. That his power is sufficient for us. And that his promise to give us eternal rest is sure. When we make ourselves stop to rest in the things of God, to rest from our toiling, we express a a sincere and deep faith in God and his promises. Sabbath keeping, though it can feel legalistic and odd, and most of us probably haven't really worked out those muscles, is actually the best defense against slipping into a belief that we can earn the salvation that God has already given us. You want to be faithful? Just stop. Just stop working. Stop toiling. Just rest. Be still on the Lord's day so that you will know he is God. Drink deeply of his bounty. Eat freely at his table. You can meditate upon the finished work on the cross as you meditate on the fact that you are not doing any work. You can have your heart soften to the fullness of his love for you as you stop and rest in his completed work. On the Lord's day, we can lay down and rest in the middle of the day because he's conquered death. Because he got up. Because he's conquered our sin. Because he has done it all for us. And because he is preparing a place for us in eternal rest. And so this morning, as we consider that, let's pray And then let's practice that by feasting at the table that he's prepared for us. His body and his blood. Let's pray.